0: Last week, we uh, started in Mark's Gospel um, as he details Jesus marching towards the cross. And we'll do this uh, all throughout Lent using the narrative lectionary texts. So I want to invite Marcus to come up uh, right now and read our passage from Mark 10, 32 through 52.
1: Jesus and his disciples were on the road, going up to Jerusalem with Jesus in the lead. The disciples were amazed while the others following behind were afraid. Taking the 12 aside again, he told them what was about to happen to him. Look, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. The human one will be handed over to the chief priests and the legal experts. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will ridicule him spit on him, torture him, and kill him. After three days, he will rise up. James and John, Zebedee's sons, came to Jesus and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They said, allow one of us to sit at your right and the other on your left when you enter your glory. Jesus replied, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or receive the baptism I receive? We can, they answered. Jesus said, You will drink the cup I drink and receive the baptism I receive. But to sit at my right or left hand isn't mine to give. It belongs to those for whom it has been prepared. Now when the other ten disciples heard about this, they became angry with James and John. Jesus called them over and said, You know that the ones who are considered the rulers by the Gentiles show off their authority over them, and their high-ranking officials order them around, but that's not the way it will be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be the slave of all, for the human one didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. Jesus and his followers came into Jericho. As Jesus was leaving Jericho, together with his disciples and a sizable crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, Timaeus' son, was sitting beside the road. When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was there, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, show me mercy. Many scolded him, telling him to be quiet, but he shouted even louder, Son of David, show me mercy. Jesus stopped and said, Call him forward. They called the blind man. Be encouraged. Get up. He's calling you. Throwing his coat to the side, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, teacher, I want to see. Jesus said, go. Your faith has healed you. At once, he was able to see, and he began to follow Jesus on the way word of the Lord.
0: Marcus. I remember when I was a kid, I would do this thing when I was waiting for something. Like, when I was waiting for my dad to pick me up from school growing up, I'd stare at the edge of the parking lot on the horizon, and I would envision his truck like coming... Over and he he looks embarrassed because he forgot me a couple times, and, and we're we're still working through it. I would wait and I'd wait and my vision would be towards that horizon and and I w- I would do this thing. I still I still do this thing, not waiting for him because I realize he won't show up. Uh, but I, I, I would I would try to predict when. When he would come, and I'd, say, I'd start counting down uh, from 300, 299, 298. And then I'd get close to the end, and I, would, I, I wouldn't want to be wrong, so I, I'd go into fractions, one and a half, <laughs> one and a quarter. Or when I got a little older, I, I'd prepare for standardized tests. I'd try to imagine what was going to be on them, what they were going to be like. I'd even kind of visualize that, that Scantron how it was laid out and how many times I was going to just bubble in C because if you don't know, you just do C. Or I'd visualize the opening day of spring baseball practice. You you could envision that ball snapping out of the pitcher's hand and and you'd look for the seams to either make a little hole and that was a curveball and you had to wait or otherwise you had to just start swinging, almost close your eyes and hit it. And maybe Maybe it was, uh, when I was like flashing back, I was also thinking of of, um, other ways when you were a kid you would envision life. And and the, the thing that got me laughing was, I sort of remember playing M.A.S.H., do you guys remember that game? And that is like the silliest way to envision life. If you're not familiar, Mash stands for a mansion, apartment, a what? Shack. Shack or house, right. And you do this whole thing, and and you knew, even when you were like a fifth grader, you knew it was stupid. But you really hoped you'd get like an attractive spouse in a pretty cool crib, right? (laughs) Or in college, I think for me, in college is when you really start to try to envision quote-unquote real life. What it might actually be like, you know, like real life, not like... College is a simulacrum of of adulthood that only happens in school when you feel like you 're really busy and each assignment 's the end of the world, but you haven 't even tasted what busyness really is or what pressure really feels like. You try to start to envision grown up friendships or maybe you don 't uh, or you start to envision marriage or parenthood or a career what that is going to be like what that 's going to feel like what it 's going to look like and then Often when you get there, things look pretty different. <laughs> When's the last time you wanted something so badly, you waited and you prepared and promised when it came you'd be ready for it, and then when it showed up, it flew right by you? Or worse, it showed up in this big, great, dramatic, myth, you know, Perhaps most of our lives are spent trying to do this kind of seeing, training our imaginations to be able to leap the gap and to image something that's not quite there yet, or might never be here. For this reason, imagination takes a lot of faith. As the letter to the Hebrews puts it, faith is the reality of what we hope for, the proof of what we don't see. So last week, we met Jesus on the road in Mark's Gospel, having just encountered a young man. This young man's identity shifted even just during the passage. First, all we know about him, and and, and this is a good exercise when you're reading the Bible, especially when you think you know the Bible, is, is try to focus and suspend what you think you know and say, what do I actually know from what I'm reading? So when we first met him, he was a curious man. Then he was a devout man. Then we find out he's actually a rich man, and then he's a sad man. Like, that's, how his, that's the arc of his character, exit stage left. As the audience, our vision of the man gets altered, as surely as his own imagination for what Jesus might offer him changes. Infinite riches of eternal life via downward mobility and poverty. His disciples aren't sad. They're shocked by this. Impossible, they say. No camel can pass through a needle's eye. It just can't happen. If you want sacrifice, well, we've left everything to follow you. We should be that yardstick. And Jesus seems to kind of affirm their vision. Robert farr Capon puts it. It's in our lastness, lostness, leastness." Littleness and death, that we are saved. Jesus surely has a flair for irony and drama. So he continues on the road up to Jerusalem with crowds and disciples in tow. You always go up to Jerusalem, no matter which way you approach from or how high your altitude, Jerusalem is the pinnacle. It's the place of the, the temple and the priest any Messiah worth his salt would need to wind up in Jerusalem sooner or later. Jerusalem was the epicenter of the Jewish religious imagination, where the shock waves of God's redemptive action would emanate out from. So Jesus leads an amazed group of apprentices and an afraid group of followers. I love this detail in the text, amazed and afraid. makes me smile to know that even with the luxury of Jesus' own bodily presence, Jesus was actually with them. The ones physically closest to Jesus had a hard time understanding what they were experiencing and envisioning exactly what they were getting themselves into. But those on the margins, those a little ways back, they were still following but they were at a distance they seem to get it they understand the topography of what's going on they see and they feel just how much conflict might be involved if jesus actually is the messiah and if god is actually coming through to claim what is rightfully his this is incendiary stuff this is the stuff that might get someone killed, and I think the crowd knows that. I remember a, a pastor friend of mine um, told me about this couple that he developed a really dear and honest friendship with. They are really smart and kind and vocal agnostics. They're not necessarily hostile to God or Christians per se. They hung out with this pastor friend of mine, and they knew it. He wasn't tricking them. But they were definitely keen on keeping their distance from church or God or Jesus. They were really cool. They, they were incredibly worldly folks. They were well-read and traveled. And I remember being struck by the way he talked about his experience of being invited to church, our church, but also when they, they traveled Europe. Um, and the, the unease he felt when they were in Europe of, of touring the beautiful cathedrals. When you're in Europe, I've never been, but from what I hear, there's always tours going on even while there's mass going on because uh, those cathedrals are pieces of art even while they house amazing, precious artwork. But this guy, he, he felt like he didn't belong there. He felt like it'd be... Disrespectful for him to be an interloper on that sacred prayer that was going on. When we invited him to Easter, he, he kind of said, I don't think you really want me there. <laughs> it was in hearing the awareness and the respect with which he described God's people's worship of their God that I was struck with how little of that respect and awareness I often have of God's grace and of his movement, how, how rare that is for me to have that from the inside. It seemed like I was missing the forest for the trees and that God was using this person to kind of speak a parable of the kingdom to me. I think we all have those friends who don't know God and aren't privy to his promises and work, but whose lives and words kind of, I don't know how to describe it, kind of tell the truth by accident or they stand as a sign to us that God's work is huge and expansive, and while he has chosen his people as a means to bring about his kingdom and chosen to put his spirit in our hearts to witness to this new creation, he also has a sense of humor, and he's creative, and he's free to use those on the outside to teach us, to, use, to renew and to recalibrate our vision, our expectations. To remind us of when we were once on the outside. And the crowds seemed to collectively see where this was going. Jesus needed to make sure his disciples could see it too. So he says, we're going up to Jerusalem. The human one will be handed over to the chief priests and legal experts. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will ridicule him, spit on him, torture him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise up. First, a note on this translation, and then what's behind that translation. Many of you were probably taken aback by the phrase the human one when Marcus read it. It sounds a little matrixy to our ears, right? I assure you, it's, it refers to Jesus and not Neo. We're used to hearing Son of Man. Translators of this common English Bible will know that to say someone is the son of something is to talk about their family resemblance, or that they possess that thing quintessentially. Like Luke 10 says, uh, son of peace. That means one who shares in peace, one who experiences and expresses peace, a peaceful one. Or Acts 13, Paul calls this guy, this sorcerer, the son of the devil. <laughs> in Durham, that, that's really not as bad of a thing as it is in other places around Duke. But this isn't literal. This, is, this, this means the guy is devilish, that he's a lowercase d devil. Here, though, for Jesus to refer to the son of man is a lot more specific that phrase would immediately snap his hearers back to their story, to Daniel 7, where Daniel had a vision of one like a human being, like the Son of Man, coming from the heavenly clouds. He came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. Rule, glory, and kingship were given to him. All peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. His rule is an everlasting one. It will never pass away. His kingship is indestructible. That's Daniel 7, 13 through 14. When someone said or heard son of man, that was a placeholder for all of this expectation. The backstory and the hope for the future. The one that would fill in for Israel and and lead them. This is no small phrase. One scholar says the son of man in Daniel 7 represents God's people as they are suffering at the hands of pagan enemies. He will eventually be vindicated after his suffering as God sets up his kingdom at last. Jesus is both warning his followers that this is how he understands his vocation and destiny as Israel's representative and that they must be prepared to follow in his steps. Jesus' followers have a hunch that this is what they're getting involved in. But perhaps they were a little overconfident. Not like cocky per se, but just getting a little ahead of themselves. They were beginning to see God making things new as they journeyed with Jesus on the road. Good news that the kingdom was coming. That power was shifting From the oppression of sin and death to the the freedom of eternal life. From some temporary imposter kingdom of empire to the lasting rule and reign of God. They had prayed and hoped that God might get involved. And as they followed Jesus and listened to him, they were seeing it happen. They could hardly contain themselves. So Jesus had to clarify the terms once more. For the third time in in the previous two chapters, Jesus predicts his trial and suffering. These are awful verbs when you're explaining victory, political victory to someone. Handed over, condemned by the church, condemned by the state. There was no separation of church and state for his condemnation. He was ridiculed, he was spit on, tortured and killed. But it seems that the disciples only listen to the last part. After three days he will rise up. It seemed to hurt their heads to have the very conceivable thing happen that they've seen would-be rebels and messiahs go through this process time and time again. But totally incompatible to their vision of the Messiah lead to the completely inconceivable result of resurrection. This one-off revolutionary vindication. So they just skip to the resurrection part the most unbelievable part. They skip to the happy ending. While Jesus is trying to get through to them just what it's going to take to save this world, to short-circuit death and to overthrow the current corrupt regime of sin by throwing himself on the wheel of history, they're asking questions about which one of them will be in Jesus' cabinet which is going to serve as the secretary to the interior or the secretary of defense and so on? Who's going to get the best seat for all of the really inevitable photo ops and pomp and circumstance and with the coming kingdom? That's what they're asking. That's what they had envisioned. And Jesus says, stop. To to all that, Jesus says, stop. Stop. That's not the way it will be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the human one did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. There's not only a new rule coming, but a new way, a new math. Forget everything you thought you knew. Forget all your grand visions. He seems to say, by royal decree of the quintessential human being, human greatness now equals servants. Winning now equals losing. Welcome to the upside-down kingdom with its trickle-down leadership ethic. It starts all the way at the top. Your leader's going to serve and he's going to give his life to liberate many people. What if we understood this? Like, what if, I think we think we understand? What if we really understood this? How would it change our vision of the good life? Would it paradoxically make us happier and, and healthier to know that God can be found in the shambles? of our unrealized dreams and visions, when we get it wrong, that's exactly where we can meet God. That can happen, and it it actually will be. That that, that will be where we meet God. Because that's how he's chosen to engage and to remake this world. Through apparent failure, through weakness, and through death. Also, what if we actually expected this out of our leaders? What if this was our yardstick? The people that we elect, sure, um, but not just with our ballots. The people that we throw our hats in with. Who we choose to work for even when the money's not that great. Or what we might expose our families to. What if service and sacrifice was the measuring stick for us as, we, as, as some of us grow into men and women who become leaders and will lead others? Jesus knew the task he had on his hands with his disciples. That after three pretty explicit predictions of his passion and death, their vision for their leader, the prophesied human one, still didn't jive with his vision for himself. It still somehow didn't account for the cross. Or if it did, the cross. Was this kind of incidental speed bump on this inevitable road to glory? Jesus won't let them or us do this. He won't let us cast our vision towards the glory and vindication of the resurrection without going through the cross. Right through the suffering and betrayal right through the misunderstanding and accusation and ultimately through the ransom of Jesus' own body. That's the hostage trade-off to get the world back, to wrestle us away from our captors and to free us slaves by breaking a cycle, by breaking a cycle of violence and disobedience to God and his plan, to God and his love. If we knew this, what kind of patience and endurance might this give us? If we didn't always feel like we needed to blow right through the Lenten journey towards Jerusalem or the suffering and injustice of Holy Week to get on with the whole resurrection bit. What if we instead walked around with the expectation that God's spirit walks with us? that no amount of sorrow or despair here and now will undo the victory and good that God is working for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Jesus has worn this path for us to walk. What if our prayers reflected this? To know nothing except Christ and him crucified. There's something powerfully worldview-shifting When you consider consider the fact that the Son of Man, who represents Israel, who represents humanity, suffers and resets the paradigm for what it means to be faithful to God, it means that our worlds now become cross shaped, that our lives cruciform in the shape of a cross. It means that the means, how we're getting there, are the ends. And each and every corner of our lives becomes an opportunity to live through Christ's cross. That's work, that's play, that's family, that's friends. To live through Christ's cross. Where he succeeded. Not because God bypassed sorrow and service, but because he gravitated towards it. I think that changes our whole center of gravity when we know that. And this is the vision that his disciples couldn't wrap their heads around. I don't really blame them. <laughs> One person in this story, though, could wrap his head around it. You see, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, who was Timaeus's son, he was sitting beside the road, the road, and he shouted twice. I'd imagine he, when he shouts at, at Jesus, he kind of shouts like indiscriminately and a little too loud because he's not really sure where he's aiming this thing at. You know. He says, "Son of David, have mercy on me," and then he says it again, "Son of David, have mercy on me." Without laying his eyes on Jesus, Bartimaeus recognizes him as the Son of David the one who shares in who David is and what he's about. Son of David was true of Jesus' lineage. His quote-unquote stepdad, Joseph, came from that family tree. But it was also true of his vocation that was being revealed. Messiah, shepherd, king. David was the one after God's own heart, and Jesus is the one after God's own heart, who's bringing about God's kingdom. And the cross is the very moment where he gets enthroned as king. So Jesus asks Bartimaeus to come forward. He calls him. And he asks him, what are you looking for? To which Bartimaeus simply says, teacher, I want to see. Jesus responds to him, this blind man with no physical vision who comes to him looking for him, for Jesus to provide light to his eyes, he looks at him differently than the others. Differently, from the, differently than the rich man whose interaction with Jesus was some version of teacher I see. He says, teacher, I, I see what, what you're doing here. He looks at him differently from the disciples who have their own machinations revealed of their deeply flawed vision of not just what God was doing, but what Christ, who Christ was. When Jesus asked them, what do you want from me? Or what do you want me to do for you? Which is the same thing he asked Bartimaeus. They essentially answered, Jesus, teacher, we see. <laughs> we want you to do what, what we want you to do for us. But when this blind man came, When Jesus invited him to come and he was asked that question all he had to say was Teacher, I want to see. Jesus then tells him that his faith has made him well and he sends him. He sends him into his life and into this world. Those last few words of our passage are so very important. You might read right over them. If you're not careful, they say, at once he was able to see, and he began to follow Jesus on the way. He was able to see, and so he began to follow Jesus on the way. That's what we leave here with. That has to be our prayer. Have mercy on me. Teacher, I want to see. Give me the vision to see you in your work. That's our prayer. Teacher, I want to see, to have clear enough eyes to see that your victory resides through risk and suffering and sacrifice and service, that you didn't skirt or rush through it, but endured that for us, for me. Teacher, I want to see. Give me the courage. Equip me by your spirit to follow you on this way. Not any other path, but this Jesus way to eternal, abundant, everlasting life. You guys pray with me? Lord Jesus, we want to see. We want to see you. We want to see what you're doing and how you're working. We want you to to just let us see the ways that your kingdom is popping up all around us, the ways that parts of our lives just don't equate with that coming kingdom and, and the things that need to fall aside. Take these scales off of our eyes. Teacher, we want to see the ways that your way challenges us, the ways that your way threatens us, give us the courage to to follow your way, to walk in your way. You've given us everything we need to do that. Teacher, we want to see. Teach us and heal us. In Jesus' name, amen.